0: Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now here's
1: your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to this week's episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tad. It's always a pleasure to be with you. This week, we have a new guest and, of course, a brand new topic. You'll be learning about how to address the social determinants of health in physical therapy practice. As physical therapists, we focus on alleviating pain, restoring physical function, and teaching pain self-management, as well as promoting healthy lifestyle behaviors to prevent chronic disease. As doctoral-trained, licensed health professionals, we have excellent skills, tools, and technologies to address a variety of acute as well as chronic health conditions. But do you know how the social determinants of health—things like economics, education, neighborhood, and other factors—influence the lifestyle choices patients make and how it impacts their outcome in physical therapy? Joining us to discuss the social determinants of health in physical therapy practice is Dr. Zachary Rethorn. He is a board-certified orthopedic physical therapist. And a certified health coach with clinical and research expertise in musculoskeletal pain conditions, physical activity, and health promotion. Zach is currently a PhD student in health promotion and wellness at Rocky Mountain University, where his research focuses on how health professionals promote physical activity with their patients. On today's episode, you'll learn all about the social determinants of health, how to identify whether patients are impacted by the social determinants of health, what clinicians can do to address the social determinants of health and the role public and healthcare policy has in shaping the social determinants of health. Okay, let's begin and let's meet Dr. Zachary Rethorn and learn all about the social determinants of health. Hey, Zach, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on this week.
0: Hey, Joe, how are you? Thanks so much for having me
1: on. I came across a viewpoint of yours in the 2019 December edition of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. And the title of that viewpoint is Social Determinants of Health, If you aren't measuring them, you aren't seeing the big picture, which I thought was a really cool title. And the viewpoint is really written concisely and it's rapid to read for practitioners who don't want to take a deep dive into social determinants of health. And there's some things in there that are very clinically applicable, which is great. So I figured, hey, I need to connect with Zach and talk to him on the podcast. You and I have connected previous to this episode and you started telling me a little bit about the great things that you're doing. Just kind of give us a 10,000 foot view of all the cool stuff you got going on right now in your world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I wear a lot of hats right now in my world. My day job is as a faculty development resident at Duke University. So the one sentence summary of that is I'm a professor with training wheels. So I am on a two-year appointment learning how to be a great educator and a great faculty member full-time one day in a PT program. I'm also a PhD student in health promotion and will be finishing that up, fingers crossed, within the next year. And my work in that is looking at how PTs promote physical activity with their patients in an outpatient setting. So the goal of my work in that is to really try to move it more into practice through some implementation science frameworks and figure out how can we actually move our profession toward considering health as an outcome and not just rehabilitation as an outcome. And then the last hat I wear is really as a solopreneur, which is a face I never thought I would get into. I started a digital physical therapy practice last year. And so I still treat and see patients and do some health coaching on the side as well.
1: Excellent. You got lots of things going on, which is awesome. Tell us what health promotion is or how do you define health promotion and maybe a few of the important factors that are under that umbrella of health promotion. Yeah, that's a great question.
0: So health promotion can mean a lot of different things depending on who you talk to. And I think that's why that's a great question to bring up. So the way I think of it is it's really anything that we're doing to advance the health of individuals and populations that we serve as, as clinicians would be from a PT hat standpoint. You know, there's also the public health perspective, which looks at the nation as a whole or, or states or groups in different factors and figures out how do we help our entire society and even our world be healthier. So there's many different layers at which you can view health promotion, but really the goal is pretty much like it sounds. How do you promote health? whether that's through healthcare, whether that's through policy, whether that's through collaborations, what does that look like? So there can be many, many, many different ways that that folks will use that to term and define that term depending on what space they're in.
1: And then tell us what the social determinants of health are and how maybe that connects to health promotion. Because health promotion in PT curricula, there are anywhere between one to three courses that are popping up in various schools, specifically on health promotion. Of course. Social determinants of health are usually embedded within one of those courses.
0: Yeah, I think when we talk about health promotion, I mean, you've, you've heard it maybe a little bit in the first answer already that you can't really talk about health promotion without considering where we live. What is the context in which we live our lives? So, the social determinants of health, strictly defined by the World Health Organization, are the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. That's pretty all encompassing, though. I mean, that is the entire context around which we live our lives. So, a few key areas that the Healthy People 2020 initiative focused on were economic stability as a driver of health, educational attainment, the social and community context, what does your relational web look like, the built environment around you, are you in an area that has air pollution, are you in an area that's safe, what does the built environment look like for you? And then finally, access to healthcare is, an, is a piece of the social context we need to consider. So when we think about social determinants, again, They can be almost anything within that realm of where we live, work, and play and pray is another way to think of it. But then within that, there are some key areas that healthy people identified and that a lot of folks have been working toward over the last decade.
1: All important topics. I mean, you're bringing in important topics such as climate, for example, which some professionals have taken a stance on and other professional organizations have not taken a stance on. But in my physical therapy mind, I'm thinking, okay, these are all really important things. But I feel like when I treat my patient, it's the intervention, the mobilization, the specific exercise that's, quote unquote, helping someone or curing them, so to speak. Is that true? Or is it more the social determinants of health that have an influence?
0: Yeah. So I think it's not an either or. I think it's a both and. And it really depends on the person in front of you. So I'll give you some anecdotal evidence from my own practice. So I started working straight out of PT school in a clinic where A lot of folks I worked with had persistent pain. So very much your audience, very much what you're about. And what I realized was that when they were coming to me with this persistent low back pain or this persistent knee pain, I ended up realizing that I was already starting with an outcome, right? So I had my own process of taking intake forms and using forms to track outcomes in my practice and seeing, did my mobilization help? Did my specific rehabilitation plan help? But really, before that, they're already coming to me with an outcome. The fact that they even have this persistent pain is itself a process with things further upstream that are influencing that. And so that's really a way to think of it is, you know, we see folks kind of at the end of the line over here, and by the time they need rehabilitation typically. So my thought was, well, how do I keep them healthy? How do I keep them from getting this? Because what I saw was the same folks would come to me, they would seem to get better, and then I would see them again six months later. And then we would work together we'd change behaviors a little bit. They'd relapse. I'd see them again six months later. And I felt like I was running on a hamster wheel. And my patients did too. And, and they were looking for more permanent, more long-term solutions. And that's when I started looking upstream, if you will, and seeing, well, what can we do to keep this from happening? And then what environment, how did the environment shape the choices that seem logical, reasonable, rational for my patients? So I'll give, I'll give you one quick example, if I can carry on for just a moment. Please do. So, I had a patient I'll never forget. So, I was working with her on physical activity. We know that that helps and can help folks with persistent pain. And so I was encouraging her to start a walking program. Well, she came to me and said, "Well, how am I going to do a walking program when I don't have a sidewalk and when I hear gunshots on a regular basis on my street. I don't feel safe going outside." And so that's when you look at, "Well, hey, if this is the barrier, if the walking program can't be reasonable, because of the social context around you, then that's the barrier and that's what needs to be addressed. And we can't do that just within the four walls of our clinic.
1: Hmm. Great story. I mean, I think so many practitioners, you know, they're in the moment with their patient in the clinic, but they're not necessarily going home with them in their mind and figuring out, okay, what's really happening, obviously, like you mentioned, in the social environment. Um, it reminds me of the PT school I went to it was in a pretty bad neighborhood in Brooklyn that had a lot of gunshots. And it was difficult for us to walk around and actually get exercise and get out because of that. So that story really rings true. As a professional, so as a physical therapist or another health professional, how do you start to identify some of these social determinants of health when you're doing your patient intake and you're starting to look upstream at, okay, there are things I obviously have to do in the clinic, but how do I start to identify these before we kind of get the wheels moving?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really wonderful question as well. So I think there are a lot of tools out there that you can use to do this actually. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. The work has already been done. There are folks in primary care that are really working to see how do we move this into clinical workflows. So a colleague of mine here at Duke was able to, with a team of undergraduate students, embed these kind of screening tools for social needs within the local community health center's workflow and intake. So there are models out there that are doing this. There are people that are doing this work. So I would recommend, if you're able to get access to the viewpoint, there's a great compendium, different types of screening tools that you can use to begin to identify how is this working? What does this sound like to ask the questions of, you know, do you have violence in your community? What is your built environment like? Are you food insecure? Is there, you know, is your home environment safe? Are you concerned about heating? You know, there are a lot of different areas that you could potentially ask questions, but there are some great toolkits that have been developed. So the Siren Network at UCSF has a great compendium of tools. And one I'll highlight out of that, that I personally think is a, is a really wonderful tool is the Health Leads screening toolkit. And so you can access it for free. You just have to give your email address, but they don't spam you, I promise. And then they'll send you a link to the PDF. And what it is, is it's a validated screening nine, 10 question toolkit. Yes, no, very simple. You can integrate it into your intake forms and begin to have an idea of what are the needs of the population that I'm working with. So I think as we think about what does this look like, I would encourage folks, if you're going to do this, be systematic. So do it with everybody. Don't do it for people you think might have that social need because we can't always tell on the surface. And so I I think the ethics of that become gray and potentially black very quickly if we don't look at engaging our entire practice population, but we try to target subgroups. I want to encourage folks to be very careful of that. So if you can integrate it with every patient, I think that that's a wonderful first way to begin to get a
1: sense, what are the needs of my community? Excellent. Can you just give us that website one more time so we can link to it in the show notes?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there's two websites. One of them is um, the Siren Network, S-I-R-E-N, at UCSF. And I don't have the link off the top of my head, but I can find it and send it to you. And then the other one is the Health Leads Toolkit. And I can send you a link for that as well.
1: And how long does that take to fill out? Because practitioners are interested in not having too much paperwork and not adding too many things on. Is it something that's relatively easy for them to tackle?
0: Yes, absolutely. So it's 10 questions, yes, no. They're written below a sixth grade reading level, so they're specifically designed to be accessible to the entire population. It shouldn't take more than a minute or two to fill out.
1: Okay, excellent. And it's one
0: of those things that you know, can open conversations then in your evaluation and can lead to some doors of avenues for their support and further referrals for, for patients who ha- may have some of these needs.
1: Yeah, and some of these are big topics. So when one shows up, what recommendations do you have for practitioners to... Either developing a network of professionals who can help out, or other resources to help the patient when you identify these social determinants.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the screening by itself is good, but if you're all you're doing is screening without having community partners and knowing what resources are available in your community, I think you may actually be doing more harm than good at that point. So again, there's some tricky waters to navigate here because screening without the capacity to actually do something may make the patient feel, well, you asked me these questions, but now you, there's no follow-up. So why are you doing this? You may actually lose trust and lose credibility with the patients if you don't have these resources to refer them on. So I would recommend even probably before you start screening, get to know your community. Get to know the resources that you have in and around the areas that your patients tend to come from and have those in place. Build those relationships now And then as you build those relationships, integrate the screening and you'll have no problem then connecting your patients. So in my practice, it was a bit of an organic process. When I started, I wasn't aware of these toolkits. I wasn't aware of kind of what I needed to do. So I just started seeing the needs and reaching out to community partners as I was able to find them. And so over time, I ended up building a pretty robust network of community partners and stakeholders who trusted me and who I trusted that then I could really say, hey, you know what? Let's have a conversation. Is this something you're willing to talk about? Is this something you're open to seeing someone else and getting referred to someone else um, to see what how they could assist you with this? And then if they, you know, if the patient said yes, then I'll I can talk up this person specifically. Oh, well, let me send you to you know Joe over here. He does great work. Here's the process. When you call, you're going to talk to this person. They're going to get you set up with this, and then this is going to happen. So I was able to have a really intimate knowledge of exactly the processes at the the community partners that I had, and that really helped sell that, hey, I'm here to help, and these people can help you too if you need it. So I would encourage you to, to maybe take that approach if you're interested at all in thinking about integrating this into your workflow.
1: And those community partners that you mentioned, of course, what comes to mind for us as practitioners is potentially another licensed healthcare professional, maybe a social worker who can intervene. But are there other organizations, larger organizations, not-for-profits that may be part of that community network that you're leveraging?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in my practice, definitely social workers were one piece of the puzzle. And I got to know the community health clinics in my area very well. I also got to know the system of kind of what would you be qualified for and what wouldn't you? And then if you're not qualified for those kinds of services through the healthcare system, then what other resources are around me? So for folks with food insecurity, what kinds of of resources are there in my community? Is there a food bank? Are there churches or faith organizations? What else is out there? What's the entire scope that I could potentially offer as resources for folks? You know, from a mental health perspective, we had a graduate school in the area that had psychologists and counselors in training that would provide pro bono services. So I got to know them very well for folks who were interested and payment was a barrier. I could refer them to students who were learning the process, but also get services in a way that folks could afford. So. Finding avenues and partners like that were really important for me. And of course, you know, depending on who you're seeing in your practice population, your needs may vary. And so, if you're seeing a lot of patients screening positive for okay, maybe food insecurity is a really big issue. Then that's an area that you could say, okay, let me take a little bit of time, let me research my area, let me see what's out there, really build some partnerships because I'm seeing this come up again and again. So other needs may or may not be as prevalent for you, but I think that that's a reasonable model to not overwhelm clinicians who are extremely busy and have much to do outside of this.
1: Yeah. Lots of great take-homes for people there. So I appreciate that. Let's take this to a different level. So we have state physical therapy associations, and then we have the national, the American Physical Therapy Association. What role do they have with regard to shaping policy or recommendations with regard to social determinants of health? Because they haven't, I mean, on the, state le- on the national level, I've seen some information come out from the APTA. Haven't seen so much, at least in the states that surround me, with regard to social determinants of health. And some physical therapists are actually very much behind this and want our professional organization to play more of a role in policy. And then some professionals feel like, well, I don't know if those things are really, you know, under our guise, so to speak.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's another great question. And and one that I think we can have a reasonable debate about the role of our professional associations in meeting these challenges. I think, for me, as I've learned more about what factors really contribute to health, you know, what really affects, at a community level, the health of a community. And it's those big-picture, policy-driven factors like, what's the educational system like in that area? What is the built environment like in that area? What are the economic opportunities available to people who live in that area? You know, what is the built environment? Do they have public transit to get out of, out of areas? You know, that was part of the work I did was with the Department of Transportation to say, look, I've got these folks. And on paper, they're close, but the public transit system doesn't serve their needs in a way that gets them access to those economic opportunities that they're looking for. And so it wasn't reasonable. You know, I lived within a mile of three health systems. And to get to one of the health systems, it took 40 minutes on the bus lines. It was crazy you had to go all the way back to the central station and then take a different bus all the way down to get a mile away. So there are all kinds of issues related to that, that I think at a local level and a community level, it makes sense to advocate for that kind of policy. You know, I think we're in a very polarized moment. And whenever we talk about social issues, inevitably, we're talking about politics because they're intertwined. We can't talk about one without talking about the other. So for me, I think keeping it at a community level really helps disentangle a lot of those uh, polarizing topics because at the end of the day, don't we want all of our community members to have the opportunity to live healthy, productive, long lives? Everybody wins when we have more access to economic opportunity, when we have better access for people to have healthy nutrition. I mean, we see the costs in healthcare associated with these long-term chronic conditions. And so... You know The evidence is very clear, right? I don't know how familiar you are with Michael Marmot and his work in social determinants of health, but you look at the the gap, right? There's a gap between the best and the worst, and it can range between 10 to 15 years, depending on what zip code you live in in the city. And then we see that there's a social gradient that the more income, the more education, the better situation from a social standpoint you have, the better your health and life expectancy is going to be. It's a very clear gradient, and it's all the way to the top. So it should affect all of us. If we're not in the 0.001% of people, of earners and education and whatever else, there's somebody above you who's doing better on the health perspective. So even from a selfish kind of self-interested viewpoint, you should care because other people are doing better than you because of this inequality and in opportunities. So I think there are a number of reasons that we should consider getting involved. I think the way that we do that and what role our professional organizations play is really going to play out over the next decade right so with our vision statement in APTA of transforming society you know we have a lot of opportunities to be outward facing and the APTA's mission is now very much aligned with that in outward facing language I think what that actually looks like and how do we be strategic where can we pull on these policy levers to make a real impact for the patients that we serve I think that is going to take a bit more figuring out uh, among people who are at much higher levels than I am within the organization Hmm. to see where can we really make an impact.
1: Is this something that's like sprinkled throughout all of our chapters and SIGs, let's say, or do we need to develop a new chapter or a new SIG or have some kind of committee? Sometimes things we can get marred down in, in committees, but I'm just wondering... How do we bring this message? You know, it's in school a little bit. If you've been out of school, you may not be as, you know, open and aware of all this, which is why I'm doing a podcast episode on this. But just looking at the national level, APTA National, we have a health promotion part, which is slowly growing. And there's some talk there, and that's similar to this, but not quite the same.
0: Right. I think there's some linkages there between health promotion and, and social determinants of health, because whenever you look at health as the goal and not rehabilitation, you have to consider these social factors because they play such a huge role. You know, I think, I know that the APTA is working on several population health initiatives, which that's another word you might hear that's related to social determinants and related to health promotion. So population health is basically just looking at not the health of individuals, but zooming out and looking at the health of groups Mm -hmm. and how can we influence the health of groups of people? And so I think that's one way that I see the national organization really beginning to get on board with this and look at this, you may not see that social determinants language used, but anytime you're looking beyond an individual level, I think you're going to have to be addressing these concerns and these issues. So I know within the Council on on Prevention, Health, Promotion, and Wellness at the APTA, I know that there's some work going on of developing some population health resources and strategies, and, and really that council is designed to connect people from across sections, across chapters. It's designed to be a meeting place and a clearinghouse, if you will, rather than a SIG within one chapter, which is a bit siloed. The idea with the council is it can be open to everybody and provide access to anybody who needs it or wants it. But then I know that the APTA has a Population Health Task Force as well. So I think that there's some movement within the state and national organizations. In my mind, I think there's still a lot of awareness that needs to happen within our profession. It's a relatively small group of people who are really invested in this and are really working in this. So if you're interested out there, listeners, feel free to contact me and I'd be happy to connect you with others who might be in similar situations. But right now it's a relatively small group of people who are really trying to
1: move this forward. Okay. Now let me play devil's advocate for a moment and kind of flip the coin on this topic a little bit. I just finished watching a series on Netflix called The Pharmacist. Have you seen it? I've not, no. Okay. Check it out when you can. Yeah, I'll give you kind of the, the over overarching one, two of it, is that during the opioid crisis in the early 2000s, that pharmaceutical companies and some prescribers of opioids actually targeted areas that, as you and I speak, I would probably identify as areas with challenges to those determinants of health. So you have a large publicly traded company that we hope is doing well, but in essence, they sent hundreds and thousands of drug representatives into those communities that they know had cha- health challenges, many of the social determinants of health that you're talking about, and you know pushed these drugs there. So we know what the outcome of that was. It wasn't very good. But how do we, you know, maybe you want to say something about that, or how do we become aware of someone using the data and the information for purposes that are not so not so ethical?
0: Yeah. So I'm not aware of that series. Uh, that doesn't surprise me though, because I worked in one of those areas as a clinician. And so when I would meet with the primary care physicians and the folks who were prescribing medications, you know, I I would say there's one physician in particular I remember that we saw a lot of referrals from in that outpatient clinic. And every single one of his patients came in with an opioid referral and they would visit him every 28 days to get a refill on this opioid referral. So that was his whole practice. And when we would go to do marketing lunches, there would always be a pharmaceutical rep there. Always, always, always. So that doesn't surprise me to hear that that wasn't just happenstance, but was, in fact, a coordinated strategy. You know, I think on some level, I despair a little bit, right, that you can do that, that a company can look at that data and target vulnerable populations and say, you know what, I see money here. I don't see people. I see money. And I don't know that there's any way we can move around that in our current moment in our current system. But I think when we really look at addressing the social determinants of health, there's a few layers. I've been talking about layers a lot, but we can do that from an individual level. We can look at social needs, we can screen for them in our clinical practice, and we can refer to resources as they're available. And that's good. That's something we can do. But that's not enough, right? That's not really solving the big picture problem. We can work on our community level and work with our boards of education to integrate physical activity into schools because we know the beneficial effect that that has on grades. We can work with our boards of education to talk about the inequity in education and how schools are very much still segregated, at least where I was in Chattanooga, extremely segregated, and the impacts that that has and the impact that the inequity in education has on the whole community. Because like I said, everybody loses. That's what the epidemiology tells us. Everybody loses when we live in a society where those inequities persist. And then we can also think about the policy level and that's really where I think we're going to have to get to, right? As a society as professionals, I think we have a voice to play at this policy level as well to say well what are the causes of the causes, right? If if boards of education are not dealing with the inequities, what are the policies that they're following that are allowing this to persist? You know, what are the policies with zoning that we're allowing to persist? So there's a lot of different areas that we can look at very upstream to say what can we do here? How can we make things more equitable? How can we make things better for our entire society? Does that make sense to you? There's, so, there's, I think, three levels. Each of them are good, but I think really when we get to that policy level, that most removed from the individual, that's where we start to see the most impact, potentially. And so, that's when you do look at things like what does Congress do? You look at things like what is your state Senate, state representatives, whatever your state legislative system is, what do they do? That's really where you look at. That's where policies are made. That's where decisions that are impacting the entire population get made and are influenced. So I think that that could be a realm for physical therapists to advocate for. Now, in our current climate, right, we all have political action committees, and at least the states I've lived in, have PACs. You know, who, what are we lobbying for? Who are we lobbying for? Are we just lobbying for our own interests? Um, you know, I, I have some tension there. I think, well, is there room? Do we have the ability to lobby for the health of our, our populations and policies that follow the evidence and follow the epidemiology and follow the research. So I think that's an area where maybe I would push our associations to move a little bit further into saying, okay, where do we have strong evidence? Because there are plenty of policies. We have strong research evidence that policies can work. It's just, do we have the political will? And can we have the messaging to convince people that this is truly what's going to be best for all of us?
1: Yeah. All great points. I mean, as a profession, we're a pretty large profession as far as the health professions go, but our representation in Congress is pretty small. So I'd love to see more PTs get involved in, like you mentioned, PT PAC and policies on the local level, on a community level, on a state level, and of course, on a national level. I do think physical therapists have a lot to say, have a lot of great information to share, both information that they've experienced on the job as well as, you know, people like yourself who are doing research that can start to open people's eyes to what's really happening out there in the communities where your senator or your congressman is working. So Zach, I know you're close to finishing your PhD, which is I'm sure will be a big party for you. But I mean this is a big topic that you've kind of started to chew on. Where do you see yourself going with this information in the future? I mean you mentioned you want to potentially be a full time professor, but is there something bigger there for you?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. I think you know, who knows what the future holds at this point? I'm, my contract ends and my appointment ends at the end of this year, and so I'm not sure what's coming next for me quite yet. But whatever I do, it, this is definitely what drives me, right? So my experiences in that clinic for those three years that I worked there, and then in home health for another year working with the same group of folks. I mean, that's really been the professional catalyst that's driven me to care about this and to want to see changes. So, from a research perspective, I think there's a lot of room that we can still work in this area. There's very little work that's actually been done that specifically delineate the pathways by which the social determinants of health impact musculoskeletal disorders specifically. So what we work with primarily is PTs. There's been a lot of work done for cardiovascular disease, for diabetes and endocrinological disorders. There's been very, very little work done for musculoskeletal disorders. So I think that's a missing piece within the research base that we need to have if we're going to make this argument that, hey, we serve people who primarily have musculoskeletal conditions, and so this impacts them in very clear ways. And therefore, we do have a stake in this. We, we do have a voice in this. This is something we should be doing. So, in the viewpoint, that's one of the limitations I address almost immediately. Is we don't have one pathway right now that links these things together. Anecdotally, we have you know I've, I've seen the evidence. We see applications to others, so we can infer, but we don't have that direct pathway to say low back pain or neck pain or knee pain. So I think that's one area that I'm extremely interested in pursuing from a research perspective to really draw that out and give us the impetus to move this forward from an advocacy and a policy
1: perspective. So if we have that research, I'm just wondering, does CAPTI, the accreditation of physical therapy schools, they have any language on social determinants of health being embedded in the PT curricula?
0: That is a great question. So I will preface my answer by saying I am by no means a CAPTI expert. (laughs) I am a CAPTI novice, and I am learning more. To the best of my knowledge, we do not have any language in the CAPTI standards specific to social determinants of health. We do have some broader language related to our responsibility to society, but nothing specific to social determinants of health. So... You know, at the program by program basis,
1: right? Um, That's what's going to drive education, which will, you know, start to plant some seeds in new professionals as they are entering into the workforce. Exactly. So that's
0: one of the barriers we face right now is that programs can choose to present this or not choose to present this. So here at Duke, we have a wonderful course that we've been partnering with the med school to deliver called Cultural Determinants of Health and Health Disparities, where they get a lot of this information. They get actionable information about what they can do as students to help begin to drive change. They get information about what they can do at that community level and that policy level from their position of privilege as a healthcare professional and, and how you can use your professional voice to help better the lives of your patients. And also learning the history of why we are where we are. Because there's a long history throughout our nation of why these inequities exist today at a local level, at a community level, and as a national. Yeah. So learning the history is an important part as well. So I think that's, to me, I'm, that's been something I've been involved with and I've been very, very excited about. I would hope to see more programs picking up models like this because I think that it's just so important. At the Education Leadership Conference two years ago, the keynote speaker closed his keynote with this great quote that I don't think I'll ever forget. It's a quote from Ernest Boyle, who is a sociologist, I believe, um, looking at undergraduate ed- education, but this applies to, to PT education as well. And he said that the great crisis of our time is not from a lack of technical competence. We are great at producing graduates who have technical competence. He says that the great crisis of our time is due to a divorce between competence and conscience. And so what I would love to see is how do we help students who may care about their, you know, whatever their passions are to improving the health of populations or people? Because everybody I believe in PT school is there because they want to help people. That's who we are as a profession. We're like the golden retrievers of healthcare. We just want to help. We just want to be there and do things. So how can we empower our students to not divorce their competence from their conscience and connect them to resources and ways to move this forward?
1: Excellent. I love that quote. It's a really, I think that'll really hit home with a lot of people and give them some really good things to think about. And hopefully the schools are reading your viewpoint and maybe coming across some of your research, which would be nice for you. And hopefully they're starting to take some of that information and and reflecting back on their curricula and maybe starting to make some changes. And we'll certainly follow your work. And if you have anything new, please let us know. But in the meantime, let us know how we can find more information out about you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, probably the main platform you can keep up to date with me on is Twitter. You can follow me. It's at Zachary Rethorn, so just my name. If you're interested in reaching out, you can feel free to reach out through my website, rethornpt.com. Um, You can also reach out through my Duke email address, zachary.rethorn at duke.edu. So definitely the social media platform I'm on the most is Twitter. I have met tons of great people through that platform and it has been an immense joy. As crazy as social media can be, I find Twitter to be an immense joy to be on.
1: (laughs) Great, so I wanna thank Zach for being on the Healing Pain Podcast this week, talking about social determinants of health. You can reach out to him at rethornpt.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. It's rethornpt.com. And this is a new topic, so make sure you share it out with your friends and family on social media. It's a really important topic for both health professionals, as well as people who are interested in policy and healthcare. I'm Dr. Joe Tata, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrative... PainScienceInstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.